Good afternoon. I'm Tim Swindle, director of the University of Arizona's Lunar and Planetary Laboratory, and this is Arizona Science. Joining me today is Elliot Chu, a university distinguished professor of physics. Welcome, Elliot. Thank you, Tim. You'll be bringing a different perspective to the College of Science lecture series Monday night, as I understand it. I think you're the only experimentalist who's a speaker. Uh, what, what's the fundamental difference between an experimentalist and a theoretician? I'll give you my answer, which um, hopefully won't be too inflammatory. But I think, um, in my view, we're the people, the experimentalists is a group of people who are actually going out there and discovering the new science that's, that's available. And the, the theorists are the ones who are actually helping us figure out what pathway we should be looking for. Where are we, where are we going with this? And um, we're the ones who say, okay, well, now that I have a pathway, let me try to figure out if, if uh, the data supports that. The traditional perception of an experimental scientist, I think, is a person with a white lab coat working by themselves. That's not exactly how you work, right? No. In fact, um, at the Large Hadron Collider, where I currently do most of my research, uh, we actually have the experiment that I work on has about 2,500 collaborators, so a fairly large number of people. Sometimes we'll be wearing a lab coat. Um, often it's jeans and a T-shirt as we go scrambling around trying to assemble parts of the detector. With a group with 2,500 people, where's the space for creativity? I mean, these are all very talented people. How do you express yourself? Well, there are a couple ways. Um, one of the ways is that when we actually are building the experiment, there are lots of different pathways we can actually figure out what um, components go in the experiment and what the best ways are to actually measure a particular signal that we're looking for. And um, some of that comes out through we'll have different groups um, who have completely different technologies, and there will be effectively a competition to see which of those technologies works better. And that's where the creativity comes in. You know, can we find a, a more creative way, a more innovative way to um, uh, determine how to measure this particular thing? Um, the second part of it comes out once we actually start taking data and accumulate data, uh, the data itself is very complicated, and we're often beset by having mostly um, background events, not the things that we're looking for, and how do we actually pare down the background to find that small little needle in the haystack signal that we're looking for. There's no roadmap on how to do that. You just have to kind of figure out it as you go, and we use both simulations and the data to kind of help uh, figure out what that pathway is, but there's a lot of creativity in doing that. What do you mean by a background event? Well, a background event would be like you are um, on the radio and you're turning the dial, and what you hear is a lot of static. So that we would consider the background. And then when you tune into the actual uh, station, you would actually hear the signal. You should start to hear voices. So that would be the signal, and all the static you hear in the, is what we would consider the background. And give us an idea of scale. I mean, you're looking for these subatomic particles but yet the detectors are anything but subatomic, right? Right. So our detector, um, called the Atlas detector, is about half a football field long. It's about 50 meters long, and its height is about six stories. So it, it's, it's you know, a small building, or, or maybe even a large building, uh, that we have contributed many parts to. To give you an idea of the scale of that, your standard camera, you know, might have of order... Uh, something like maybe six megapixels or something like that, six million pixels. So the um, Atlas detector has 100 million signals coming out of it and producing, uh, we have about a billion collisions per second happening at any given time. So this means that you must be doing a lot of computer processing to eliminate a lot of them, but how do you keep from fooling yourself? 
Uh, that's a great question. We it's it's actually uh, one of the problems that that scientists often have is that they can fool themselves into thinking that something they're looking for is actually there. The nice thing about the Higgs signal is that if we are to to see a rare signal like the Higgs, when we plot the mass of the reconstructed particles, we'll actually see a small bump. And the way we know that we're not fooling ourselves is that the Higgs can decay through many different um, decay channels. We call them. Each of those final systems will have the same mass if it's really coming from the Higgs. If we actually had those different signals showing up at different masses, that would be an indication, for instance, that, we might, that we're kind of fooling ourselves. So any other words of advice for the uh, budding experimental scientist? What does it take to make it in experimental science? Obviously, it would be great to have a good background in, in math and science, but I think it also, as you kind of indicated, it's really important that um, scientists maintain that sense of creativity. I think the people who have been most successful have been the ones who have been thinking outside the box a little bit and being able to um, imagine things that maybe don't exist today. This is Tim Swindle, and this has been Arizona Science. You can listen to this and other Arizona Science segments by going to the Arizona Public Media website at azpm.org.